Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's spring, and what better way to put a spring in your step than by buying some comfy knickers or pants? That is how it works, right? I mean, when I was a kid, if you bought new trainers, then everyone said you'd be able to run faster. So I guess if you buy new pants, then you might be able to put a spring in your... Oh, no, bum. Wait, that's... Wait, okay, that's wrong. Yes, anyway, uh, while we all know the wonderful British boxers do an incredible range of things to sleep in, it's now nearly sunny outside again, you know, in that way where it's also a bit cold, but you're still going to need a new T-shirt, hoodie, or new pants to go and try it in before you then have to go back inside and get your jacket. And British boxers have a brilliant range of all of those things, as well as pyjamas that you're probably still going to need for work until at least 2023. British boxers are an independent, ethically excellent lot who make actually nice lounge and casual wear that you can wear inside or outside, but, you know, with shoes on as well because you're sensible. Head to British-Boxers.com and use the code PARPOLBRO10 and you'll get 10% off whatever you order. You might accuse me of being in the pockets of Big Pyjama and I'd say, no, actually, I'll take a medium and my pockets have an old tissue in because that's tradition. It's just always there. I don't even know where it's come from. It's really strange. It's every... Pajama pocket, it's always an old tissue. How does he get Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that doesn't do plain speaking as, frankly, reading flight numbers off the departure boards gets dull pretty quickly. I'm Tin and Dooyeb, and as the Queen's main ride, Captain Racism, Demolition Derby expert and pioneer of eyebags for eyebags, Prince Philip, has finally died, I think we should all hold a candlelit vigil for him on Clapham Common and just see what happens. Yes, Prince Philip officially died last Friday, even though I'd assumed he had done years ago too and was just being carted around for show like a British Museum touring exhibit. But apparently he managed to hold on until just before he was due a letter from the Queen, which he obviously thought wasn't worth sticking around for, and then kicked the bucket, or at least had one of his many staff do it for him, at the age of 99. Ugh, so young and so much potential left to give, right? And of course, when a royal dies, the country enters a period of national mourning, where for eight solid days we all honour Philip's death by complaining that the MasterChef final wasn't on, or the radio has gone shit, and that we're bored of watching haggard wisp Nicholas Witchell try to eke out a third day of news that a man is still indeed dead and hasn't returned to life like a new Covid variant has hit Romero levels, or a season of Kingdom where absolutely no one notices that anything about the awful behaviour the royal is displaying is any different to normal. 
Prince Philip said he didn't want the fuss of a state funeral, planning instead for one with just 800 guests, which sounds positively casual. But thanks to Covid, you know the disease that has led to the deaths of many, drained public resources and widened inequalities, and so in many ways is just like the royal family, Philip's funeral will now only have 30 attendees, with the Prime Minister and St Bernard Hyde filled with old feta cheese Boris Johnson stepping aside to give more space for friends and family to attend, because with his two faces, ego and hair, that's at least four places he could have otherwise taken up. So instead, as part of eight days of national mourning for Philip, there's just been the fuss of every electronic billboard featuring his looming face, MPs making speeches about him where some chose to talk about his achievements, but the Prime Minister chose to say that every time Philip made a racist comment, it was just an attempt to lighten the atmosphere, even though in reality, I don't think that was what he wanted to lighten. One article last week said the Duke of Edinburgh had the air of a man who knew what to do in a bear attack, which is presumably just tell his staff to allow themselves to be eaten by it while he drove off straight into a tree. Or maybe it's just play dead. I'm not sure. There is also to be no political news for eight whole days with no press conferences, interviews or campaigning because in the great British attempt to cover up the Duke of Edinburgh's racist views, they pretended his want for a blackout wasn't just Philip's ideas about his granddaughter-in-law joining the family. So obviously I have to comply and the podcast this week will have absolutely no political news whatsoever and instead I just want you to spend every second of this show mourning Prince Philip. You know, eating your Prince Philip commemorative cereal shapes resembling a car wreckage, watching the special Prince Philip version of television shows where celebrity chefs wear a plastic mask of the recently deceased royal while hacking away at a pig carcass till it resembles his face. Or wannabe pop stars sing Prince Philip over and over again in a variety of styles while Tom Jones gyrates accordingly and we all greet our friends with something horrendously bigoted about their ethnicity before whispering our favourite thing about Phil to each other. Mine is the way he started wooing the Queen when she was just 13 and he was an adult and how he's clearly kindly passed that trait directly onto his son. Ah, what a lovely bunch. Rest in power, Philip, because as a royal, that's pretty much what you did your whole life anyway. So, luckily for the government, you won't be hearing anything to do with politics on this show. For example, you won't be hearing how uh, when former Prime Minister and constant infected football bladder David Cameron said back in 2014 that lobbying would be the next big political scandal waiting to happen. It was because, like all good sociopaths, he was merely laying the clues for his own capture. I wonder what other hints at his future disappointments we might find if we hearken back to Cameron's days as Prime Minister. Perhaps that tune he hummed as he walked away after resigning after losing the Brexit vote will actually turn out to be a series of notes that are a code to his offshore accounts. Or maybe that weird legs apart stance that he always did was actually a marker for the direction you should travel in to find where he buried his morals. And spine. And that pig. For the past year, no one's mate Dave has been lobbying various ministers and civil servants, including the Chancellor and grinning binder clip Rishi Sunak, who he texted directly to plea for government funding for a company Cameron worked for that has since gone bust. Yeah, classic Cameron, a man whose notion of the big hole in public finances was always that it's never as deep or as needing as the one in his pockets. Three weeks after the reports were leaked, Cameron squeaked out a non-apology saying that even though everything he did was above board, there were lessons to be learned about how he communicated with the government. But from someone who's never given a shit about supporting education, that really isn't saying much. It does seem David Cameron's main takeaway is just to do it again, but far more quietly next time. The government are going to investigate the former Prime Minister's efforts to lobby ministers, so we can all pretend that that's a relief, knowing full well they'll just decide that David Cameron's only mistake was not offering to have a go at selling unsafe PPE as well, or he'd have qualified for twice the amount. The report will no doubt say that actually we live in the least corrupt nation in the world, and we should be regarded as a model for any other money-based countries. 
It will be an independent inquiry, much like the recently released Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities was, which now turns out that large portions of it were rewritten by the government after it was submitted, because nothing says there's no structural racism here, like actively erasing words of people of colour to pop your own version of history in there instead. I'm surprised they didn't change an entire section to Scarlett Johansson. The report has been heavily criticised by pretty much anyone who's ever read or seen anything ever, but Number 10 have, as always, responded by rejecting all of that and saying it's just a distraction from the contents of the report, which say it's not race but socio-economic backgrounds that impact life changes. So I'm really excited to see how in a few years they won't have done anything about that either and will no doubt rewrite a report saying that that was never a thing at all and it's all to do with people's favourite crisp flavours or something like that. The government say what people should be focused on in the report is their 24 recommendations for making people's lives better. One of which is a Making of Modern Britain resource that tells how actually slavery was really great for the cultural transformation of African people. Yeah, God, of course, now you say it, it's obvious, isn't it? And if you really think about it, the bombing of Pearl Harbour was actually so positive in how it gave the Hawaiians a real chance to finally revamp the dock scene. God, I mean, just like when you put your mind to it, the Spanish Inquisition were actually just helping everyone get a head start on their job interview technique and the ability to deal with stress. It's all about how you look at it, right? I mean, if you pop that positive mental attitude right on like a pair of VR goggles, then you'll see that eight nights of rioting and sectarian violence in Northern Ireland isn't at all the fault of Boris Johnson, because how was he even to know where Northern Ireland was or that he was responsible for it when it was a whole sea away? I mean, it can't be a real country, otherwise he wouldn't have given the ministerial position of Secretary of State for Northern Ireland to Brandon Lewis, a man who looks like a rejected Wind in the Willows character on account of all his traits being so mind-numbingly boring he'd do nothing for the story. Lewis understands the situation in Northern Ireland so much that he waited until there'd been violence for over a week before he urgently flew over to do absolutely nothing about it. He said that he was the first to acknowledge that there were issues with the Northern Ireland Protocol, which he wasn't, as he insisted on January the 1st this year that actually there wasn't an Irish sea border at all. So the only explanation is that he's not paid attention to anything anyone else has ever said about it, and Lewis is now feeling smug that having discovered there is a protocol, he can finally fix things by letting everyone else know, which might calm it down a bit. There's been loads of idiots, like for example Kate Hoey, who is entirely made of teeth, blaming the EU for inflicting the protocol on Northern Ireland and stopping them from having a proper Brexit. Something that the EU obviously did by whispering into Boris Johnson's ear as he slept, so that he and his team alone would come up with it and then thank the EU for their flexibility in agreeing to it so that Northern Ireland could have a Brexit. Lewis told political parties in Belfast that the protocol would not be scrapped, probably on account of them having absolutely nothing to replace it with after getting rid of the backstop. But Boris Johnson's only response so far to the violence was a tweet after six days of riots saying that the only way to resolve differences is through dialogue, not violence or criminality, which must be why he hasn't bothered saying anything since and doesn't want to hold an emergency summit to talk about it. In fact, Johnson hasn't really said anything much at all for days, with the media blackout meaning that instead of his big announcement to herald the lifting of yet more lockdown restrictions in England, we've just had a warning to behave responsibly, which coming from Johnson is like Animal from the Muppets doing a public service broadcast to ask people to drum quietly. It was only two weeks ago that definitely doesn't look like she's his relation, Jennifer R. Curie, made it public that her and Johnson did have an affair for four years. The most shocking part of that is the evidence that he was actually able to commit to something for a length of time. When it comes to all the public funds that R. Curry had access to during that period, Johnson believes he has no case to answer to, and I guess if he believes it, why should we question, hey? I mean, I'm starting to think that with the race report and with the investigation into Cameron, maybe the best way forward for all of us is just to review and do reports into ourselves. I wish I could have taken my own driving tests and passed myself first time round after insisting that nearly careering into the side of a lorry was just me trying to culturally develop British driving. 
So really, if we weren't all relentlessly mourning, we could be celebrating. As institutional racism has definitely gone, so says the institution. The Prime Minister has only ever acted appropriately, so says the Prime Minister. Brandon Lewis has finally sussed out what the problem in Northern Ireland is, and we won't hear about it on the news till Sunday anyway. So hopefully they'll just ignore it and it'll go away. And now pub gardens, zoos, hairdressers and shops are open again, meaning we can now see all the things we can't afford to do after a year of no work. More than 32 million people in Britain have now had their first dose of a vaccine and 7.4 million of those have had their second too. But due to incredibly minimal blood clot risks that are less than you get from taking the contraceptive pill, under 30s are now being offered an alternative. A vaccine, that is. Although it'll probably end up that the alternative is just for them to stay at home while all older people with 12 houses go to all the festivals and tell all the youth they're being ungrateful. According to Education Secretary and runny nose personified Gavin Williamson, he said that children have lacked discipline and order during lockdown, but I reckon that's just because having been at home with his kids, he's seen them laughing at how pathetic he is on a daily basis. Williamson wants mobile phones banned in schools, but maybe that's because he's worried students will use them to leak details of National Security Council meetings and then end up taking his job. Things are getting back to the normal we were unhappy with before COVID, and Transport Secretary and missing link between humans and mole rats, Grant Shapps, has even said people can start thinking about foreign travel again. Which is worrying, because actually I've been thinking about it for ages and maybe that wasn't allowed. I can't afford to go anywhere, but it's been my happy daydream whenever the government have fucked something up and I just want to escape the country. Both Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson have been urging people to return to their offices, with the Prime Minister saying that people have had too many days off, not realising that the country doesn't actually have the same work ethic as him. While Sunak says that bosses need to get staff back to work before they resign, which isn't how it works. Oh, if you continue to let me have more time for exercise, eating well and seeing my kids, then I am walking. Can you imagine the strikes as people formed protest queues outside work demanding more hours and longer commutes, cheering as scabs push past, because actually that's the real revolution. If Sunak was alive in Victorian times, he'd have been a factory owner demanding that everyone let the orphans lose their limbs and machines, otherwise they might willingly starve themselves to death. There are talks of traffic light systems being used to allow mass events to go ahead, and I hope the system will be red, no, you can't come in, you are pestilence the horseman of the apocalypse, green, hey, go for it, have a nice time, and amber, honestly, art, sports and culture have been so fucked over that we need your ticket sales, and look, I'll just look over there and you can run in and we can pretend you never coughed. There are concerns over vaccine passports being necessary to allow people to gain access to go abroad, go to festivals, go to theatres and similar events. But I have to say I'm quite pro-vaccine passports as I got through a lot of my teenage years with a fake ID. And what with youth employment being at an all-time low, this could give a lot of much-needed work to a savvy 14-year-old with access to a printer and a laminator. A number of MPs have said that vaccine passports would be dangerous, divisive and discriminatory, so I guess that is a problem as with those qualities they may end up running as a Conservative MP. Labour leader and practical ASR 33 teleprinter Telex Terminal, Keir Starmer, said vaccine passports are not British, and he's right, because a truly patriotic passport would actually give us less access to places. Speaking of Labour, which we're not, as they too have halted all political interviews, conferences and whatever it is they actually do until after Big Phil's anti-weight party, Keir Starmer was criticised after visiting a vaccination centre at Jesus House in Brent, which is known for its homophobic beliefs. No, Starmer, that's not what anyone meant when they said Labour has to be a broad church. Starmer said he wasn't aware of the Jesus House views before his visit, which isn't a good look for someone as forensic as him if he isn't able to even use Google. Is it perhaps that he was aware of their views but was hoping conversion therapy might actually mean he could get tips on how to make swing voters finally like him? Labour's new tactic is to push for a victim's law, presumably so they can claim for the absolute battering that they're getting in the polls. Returning to the days of new Labour is to give victims of antisocial behaviour the same rights as victims of crime, as antisocial behaviour has risen in the past year. 
Yeah, of course it has. We all had to be antisocial or have passed on the fucking virus, you idiots. In Scotland, slowly compressing outie Alex Salmond announced his new political party, ALBA, who stand for making electronic products in the 90s. Oh no, sorry, wrong one. They're actually standing for independence, and they obviously care about independence so much that they wouldn't let the SNP do that all by themselves. And Baroness Shirley Williams has sadly died aged 90, a founding member of the Liberal Democrats, but apart from that, she seemed to be mostly liked. Hey, we all make mistakes. But of course, I can't mention any of that on this week's show unless you are listening to this podcast on Sunday the 9th of April, in which case, morning over, it is totally allowed. But if it is before that, please remove all references I've made to anything political and just replace it instead with absolute mourning for Prince Philip, a man who enriched many people's lives through the Duke of Edinburgh Award, which, you know, gets kids to use skills to orienteer their way safely out of a forest and thus give them a head start at survival if being chased by Prince Andrew. Hey! Did you miss me? No? What do you mean you've been too busy watching the same documentary about Prince Philip on 12 different channels at once? Hey, look, I know some of you might be royalists. I mean, I doubt it. You listen to this. And I don't mean to appear callous, but I just, I couldn't give a shit, really. I mean, a lot of people have died over the very tragic past year that we've had. So the idea that we might ignore them all to go all out for someone who regularly sounded like an arsehole just feels like all the wrong priorities, doesn't it? I mean, he definitely was, definitely was. Whenever people talk about, hey, what he did was uh, say really racist things. Yeah, that's not really, shouldn't really be the best quality that keeps coming up. Um, I saw on the news uh, just yesterday, it said, uh, live, Prince Philip dead, which is a confusing headline as it is. But also, I mean, he died on Friday. I'm recording this on Monday, so that was Sunday. Has he died again? Is it like how the Queen gets two birthdays? It is, it's really bonkers. It's kind of over the top. Fine, have one day about it, but eight days, Jesus Christ. Still, though, we can all now sit outside and drink booze or something, uh, though ironically, thanks to the past year, all I can afford to do is stay at home. I'm not remotely religious, as you might have realised by now, but it was snowing this morning on this the day everyone can drink but only outside. And I did wonder if it was some deity trying to give us one last chance to reconsider. But I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be very hopeful about it all. Um, the vaccination programme seems to be working. That is great, even if I don't think Johnson deserves the praise that he's getting from it. I mean, all he ever does is fuck things up so much that when something actually goes right like it's meant to, it's deemed a huge success. It reminds me, there was a kid at my school, and this is true, who tried to burn down the music block, and then after that we had to give him a round of applause at assembly for just turning up to lessons for a whole week. It's like, no, that's what you're you're meant to do. Anyway, I hope you had a good few weeks uh, without this podcast. I tried very hard to not watch the news and have a break, but annoyingly things kept happening, and I couldn't fit them all in this show this week, or well, it would have gone on for ages, and there'd be no time left for royal mourning. Um, but of course, this is back now. The podcast is back and it will continue to be back until we all figure out something better to do with our lives or, you know, it stops being too cold to go outside one or the other. Um, we went to sit in our friend's uh, sort of not really a garden, but some sort of concrete outside their flat yesterday. And they've got a little outdoor bit. It's very nice. And it was so lovely seeing them uh, till our hands went kind of blue. And I did wonder if actually we're all just going to suppress COVID by making it number two on the biggest cause of hospital admissions after pneumonia. But uh, hopefully not. Anyway, um, cheery. Try and be cheery. Thank you. Thank you very much to all of you for listening to coming back to this show. Thank you to L Jones for donating to the ACAR supporter, Pablo, Helen, Martin, Christine, somebody, James and Kim for donating to the Kofi, and to Andy for upping his Patreon donations. All of that is very, very much appreciated. And a very big thanks as well to uh, Jackie and PK who donated to the Kofi um, after I tweeted about a book that I really, really wanted to read but I couldn't afford to get because uh, this month is rubbish. It's properly rubbish. Uh, 
but may should be all right. This one's terrible. Um, more about that book in a minute too. But look, if you can donate to this podcast, um, it is still until gigs are allowed to return in July time. It's sort of my only regular work. So if you can even fling a one pound to the Patreon or Kofi sites as a recurring payment, you will be making my life and the making of this podcast absolutely tons easier for me. Um, obviously, if you can't, that is also fine. But I probably won't send you a Christmas card. Uh, that's just the fact of the matter. I mean, I probably won't send the people who donate a Christmas card either because um, I don't have their addresses. I don't really, I don't send any, I don't even send my family Christmas I normally don't get around to it. They've got other stuff to do. But they probably, saying that I probably won't send them a Christmas card, that just gives hope, doesn't it? And what we need is hope right now. And if you're not donating, I'm just not, I'm probably not going to give you the hope. It's a bit unfair, but that's just how it is. Also, it's nowhere near Christmas. So, I mean, really, this is quite a useless sell, but I'm just, I'm trying, I'm trying to find reasons to persuade you. Anyway, look, if you can't, you can't. Uh, if you can, uh, ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or patreon.com forward slash parpolbro. Or if you really need to, the ACAR supporter button. Um, or now we're allowed outside. Just lob your credit card at me from a distance and I promise to only use it for contactless payments up to £45. Is that, is that fair? That's fair, isn't it? That's fair. Um, thank you also to Davy Boy for the lovely review on Apple Podcasts, which is another thing that you can do should you fancy. I don't want to push you. I'm not, I'm not pushing you, but if you, if you feel like it, go and do that. Right, so uh, that book. Right, uh, so I read two books uh, over the break, which is a lot for me because I've just my reading has got terrible. It's basically I've no time to read during the day uh, dealing with um, a, a three-year-old that is now having three-year-old tantrums about uh, putting a sticker of a worm the wrong way up and or like not wanting to wear a hat or everything is slightly wrong. Anyway, so that's now my day. I've got no time to read in the day and then at night I tend to immediately fall asleep if I start reading because of the day. Anyway, but thanks to getting food poisoning from a cake... Yes, really, that happened to me. I've never felt so betrayed in my life. Um, I had several hours uh, last week of being sad lying in bed and managed to read um, the entirety of Musa Okwonga's brilliant One of Them book, uh, which I interviewed him about on this show back in February. It's so very, very worth your while. It is wonderful. Um, if you enjoyed that conversation, do grab a copy. It's fascinating, insightful. It's a moving read. I absolutely bloody loved it and I couldn't put it down. Um, do grab that. It is out, I think, on Thursday. Um, then the other book, the other book, uh, which uh, I two of you kindly donated to me uh, to get um, it was Emma uh, Dabry or Emma Dabiri's um, book called What White People Can Do Next um, now Emma uh, Dabry did the now very famous book on African history called Don't Touch My Hair and this new book um, despite the intentionally provocative title is the most beautifully positive read about the stupidly divisive world that we're currently in um, honestly I-, I couldn't recommend it enough um, it's not just about racism and the-, and, the- and the way that sort of we categorise people it's just a really humanitarian view about our need to see other people as people um, and return to a life of empathy for others and generally also stop going on Twitter definitely stop going on Twitter um, but I've been calling it like a memo to humanity that's really what it is it's only 148 pages long and you can currently get it on hive.co.uk for about £6.45 um, and it's had my brain racing since I finished it in one sitting so that's Emma uh, Dabry um, What White People Can Do Next um, she was on the Blind Boy podcast talking about the other week which made me really want to pick it up so do give that a listen if you get a chance oh and maker of all the music on the show um, or in other words all the music that I nick from him anyway um, and my brother Corin, aka The Last Skeptic he has a new track out if you like all his musics um, it's called Today I'm Going to Change My Life so grab that from whichever music hole that you seize noise from okay on this week's show I'm talking to Diana Shalai from the Curve podcast all about the race report and if the business sector is in any way better than the government when it comes to equality and in the middle there's a bit about how David Cameron is still a shit I know I know who'd have thought who'd have thought mate, you know, maybe since he last been a shit, maybe he'd stop being a shit. But no, he's generally just sort of sat in that big shed, continue to be a shit. There you go. 
If the government were to release a truly honest report on racism in the UK, it would likely just have one A4 piece of paper signed by Pretty Patel and quoting Dr. Everzan in Star Wars at the Mos Eisley Cantina when he says, he doesn't like you, I don't like you either, you just watch yourself. Followed by links to where you can find flight details to the places furthest from here. As it is, the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities was released at the end of March and announced that actually institutional racism doesn't exist in Britain. Yes, it turns out that Windrush scandal victims are still not receiving compensation for illegal deportations, disproportionate Covid deaths of black and Asian people and various members of the establishment from royals to politicians regularly trying to out-racist each other like it's a Radio 4 panel show is actually something that should be regarded as a model for other white majority countries. Which also sounds like asking a contestant on just a minute to promote racism for 60 seconds without hesitation or repetition. Though actually, the report did contain repetition, as chairman of the committee and man who regularly looks like his shirt is trying to eat him, Tony Sewell, has said many times that he doesn't believe institutional racism in Britain exists, as have several other members involved in writing the report. So, of course they wouldn't find it. It was like hiring X-Files season one Dana Scully to write a report on the existence of aliens. It was never going to happen. Since the report came out, the Prime Minister's senior advisor on ethnic minorities resigned, academics quoted in the report have said they were tricked into con contributing to it, and commissioners of the supposedly independent report have said that Downing Street rewrote big bits of it in order to keep up the totally not institutional racism of rebooting something so it's inherently more whitewashed, and supposedly more palatable for the general public. Oh, and a Met police officer was sentenced for being a member of a Nazi group, but hey, maybe that's something that should be regarded as a model for other white majority countries, right? Ah, no, wait, we've tried that one and turns out not so great. That the race report was wrong isn't news, particularly to people of colour in the UK who are very aware that this is a place where the BBC's obituary of Prince Philip said his regular racist outbursts were nothing more than an attempt to lighten the atmosphere and put people at their ease. I mean, there's only a handful of events where comments like that relax people and they generally end with cross burning or Nigel Farage passing round a hat to fund him shouting at dinghies. So, how dangerous is it for the government to say institutional racism isn't a thing? Or can positive progress towards a more equal society be made without state involvement? Because, I mean, it's increasingly looking like with all the issues in the country right now, the only way to do the job properly is by yourself, especially when most of the government have never had a job before and don't really understand what it is. This week I spoke to a guest who, I'll be honest, I'd booked in to talk to uh, before the release of the race report and I was kind of hoping to talk about all the other brilliant work that she does. Uh, but as is exhaustingly the case, because uh, Diana Shalai brilliantly talks about navigating institutional spaces such as finance, education and healthcare as a black person on her podcast The Curve, it kind of meant that we had to start with the race report. Um, Diana, aka D, is a young professional in the banking sector and with her friends they set up the curve to create a space where people could talk candidly and openly about the issues they face in them in terms of prejudice and bigotry from blatant to structural. The podcast is on a hiatus while they rebrand, so D kindly agreed to chat about the ways in which we discuss race as a society and if the business sector is better or worse than any others when it comes to inequality. I should say, before you listen, there are a couple of Zoom glitches. I mean, we're all used to them now. I mean, it's basically been our life, hasn't it, for a year. You should be used to a Zoom glitch. Just deal with it. Uh, hopefully I've edited it so that you won't notice it too much. Also, weirdly, despite there not being an issue with this at any other point, uh, there's one bit where Dee makes me laugh so much that it seems to echo through her headphones and sounds all a bit weird. Um, but it was very funny. So that is... I couldn't help it. Um, also, uh, first for this show, I've left the bit on at the end of the chat. Um, I always ask guests if there's anything I should have asked them that I didn't, and then I usually edit it into the chat so you don't notice. Um, but this time, Dee asked me a question instead, and I just thought it best to let the chat continue and leave it as it is. So a little bit behind the scenes for you there, behind the scenes. Um, I hope you enjoy. Here is Dee. 
Hey, Dee, um, thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, the first question, and it, it's not a question I really want to ask you about, but timing and uh, everything, I feel that it's necessary that we start with this. So the government in their race report said that there was no evidence of institutional racism, which, I mean, yes, exactly. Oh, God. I mean, it's like it's not even not even worth kind of uh, pretending that there's any... Um, you know any any gravity to that statement it's already been dismissed by so many charities and all all the academics that took part it's it's i mean and the fact that the next day a police officer was arrested for being uh, a nazi there's already a lot of uh you know a lot of evidence that shows that they're completely wrong and there has been for many years but i thought what i wanted to ask you about is how damaging do you think it is that the government have have said that or you know is it just silly for us to kind of think the government are going to say anything sensible on this in the first place I think the sad thing is, is that the government should be able to speak on topics such as this and represent the view of most of the people. I think it's dangerous because it also it almost shows me that we haven't necessarily moved forward. We had all the events of last year where everything was brought to light and it almost seemed like a transitional moment where people started to understand and see things through the experience of lived uh, black and brown people. And it almost seems like the, the government have basically said, yeah, we see what you're saying, however, all the buts, like, yeah, no, but we don't really believe that because, and it's sad because it almost feels like you can't, I feel, I have come from a space where I feel like you can never tell someone that their lived experience is incorrect. So when I read, I didn't read all the reports because I didn't want to give it too much of my time because 2021 is about protecting your peace. But what I did read, I just, it was just very saddening. It was almost like they, they went in with their own thesis and the whole point of the report was to pick out the bits that supported their thesis they've taken they haven't taken into account lived experiences they haven't taken into account um what it actually feels like and I think the fact that they have put um it's that seal guy who actually wrote the report it's almost I guess if he hasn't experienced racism in the UK that's completely fine like that's on him but to discredit so many people who have and who have come forward with their stories I've experienced institutional racism I've experienced systemic racism in the schooling system in working in finance so for you to basically bring out a report and say yeah no that's probably more down to class or other factors and you, the way you perceive racism is your own fault because your perception is that you're going to go into a I don't know some sort of environment and experience racism that's why you t- perceive as racism when it's really not that's almost to say that these issues can't live side by side. Like I might experience um, racism in addition to experience sexism, in addition to experience classism, you know, it hasn't got to be exclusively or experiencing one thing. It's all, it all blends into one another. Right. Yeah. Cause it was, you know, that was one of the issues I saw a lot of people write uh, more coherently about than, than I could, but the, the fact that, that class is a big problem, that is a problem, but it's not a problem separate to, racial issues it's you know it's it's combined you can't just say there's there's no institutional racism it's all class it's no no it's class and racism kind of combined in a in a problem altogether and you know I guess that just sort of creates more divisiveness by people going well you're ignoring the white working class as opposed to you know by focusing too much on racial issues and that's the thing that's always got to me is I think that people always assume that me telling you about my lived experience takes away from your own in no way or form people coming forward talking about racism or things of experience is us discrediting the lived experience of like a white man or um, a Somalian youth. It just means that this is my experience. This is what I've experienced. It doesn't take away from your own, but acknowledge that this is what's going on. And I think it's that. It's, it's almost like I feel like it, it's like that all lives matter versus black lives matter. It's that debate. It's like saying that me saying black lives matter doesn't 
take away from the fact that other lives matter as well. I'm just saying that my life seems to be mattering a lot less than a lot of people right now. So please, like, can we at least come, like, can I, can my life be on par with yours? Like, can you acknowledge that my life is seems to be mattering less? And it's that. Yeah, it, it's, um, I, I've just, um, I'll, I'll probably talk about this far too much because I've only just finished reading it the other day, but I, I read sort of Emma, Emma Dabry's book this week. I don't know if you, you've read it or, or know about it, but it's a new book. It's called uh, What White People uh, Could Do Next. And it, but mm-hmm. what's lovely about it, it's a very humanitarian book and it's just about that. You've just got to see other people as people. Like, we, you know, we're so divided about other people's experiences are different to mine and this doesn't important. It's about going, we're all people. We've all been through shit. Like this yeah. is, <laughs> why is it impossible to not realise that and recognise that? And that's something that, seems to be absent from from the way in which we discuss everything and i was thinking even even just with the you know with the uh you know the the the, the vigil the police the vigil of sarah everard and all that and there's all these men online going well i'm not as scared at night and you, well no of course not like it's not about you yeah. like, just we've all <laughs> this is it yeah this is exactly it and i just think though well, it seems that there's a lot of like there's a lack of empathy right now it's like people feel like they have to live in their own silo and if um, something that's going on doesn't align to something they've experienced, it's almost like they could discredit it or they haven't got to care about it. But it's like, I don't live my life discrediting other people's experience just because it's different to my own. Yeah. And I feel like this is kind of what's happening right now. To be fair, in smaller pockets, and I do feel like one thing to state as well is it's a minority problem. I think the majority of people are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. It's this minority, it's a small minority of people who... I guess the media focuses on so it almost highlights it and make it feel makes it feel like it's this large majority of people who are just ignorant and don't want to open up their eyes to what's going on but the reality is it's actually a small pocket of people the most of the people I interact with on a daily basis be it whether they're white black brown middle class upper class um you know different upbringings they know what's going on but it's a small amount of people what we fixate on and we care about what they think I think sometimes we just have to step back and understand that that's their opinion they haven't lived experience. They haven't probably have time to talk to someone like me or talk to someone who's gone through things that they're just going to live in their own bubble. But if they come out into the real world, and I guess I'm from London, so at the real London and see how multicultural it is and how classism and racism align, you know? Yeah, it, I guess. Do you think that's I mean, part of the, and if, I, I, want to, I want to ask you about about your experience in, in a minute, but I, I was wondering if part of that uh, is the case, because where, whereabouts in London are, are you from? Camden, the, the greatest borough in the world. <laughs> yeah, so I'm from down the road. I'm from Finsbury Park, so I'm not far, not far from oh, okay. here. But I always grew up in, in a, you know, in a totally mixed state school. I grew up in a totally mixed area and it just was never, like there was never a thought of anyone else being different because it was our area and all our, our, you know, people in the area. And, yeah. and and I, you know, I do sort of think the amount, especially a lot of um, conservative ministers particularly who kind of grew up on a big estate in the middle of nowhere where the only people they see are the people they hire to do the gardens or whatever, you know, it's, I, I wonder yep. if there's that kind of um, just their, their lived experience that were is not interacting with anyone outside of that little bubble. And if, if that then creates a problem. It massively does. Cause I remember I went to university, right. And, before that I was kind of like you I'd interact with everybody because it's weird because when you grow up poor everyone around you is poor in regards to what colour they are so no one's different to you and then you come out of this bubble and you go to like another bubble which could be college mine was university and that's when I got introduced to so many different people and realised oh so not everybody lives like me oh like people really have like good lives compared to me but not necessarily saying that my life was bad but I do remember that in my final year I got put in a flat with, it was me, there was a flat of 10. So it was four black girls and then it was six white boys. And these white boys were very much like, you know, grew up private school, um, 
upper class, like completely different to us. And in that year that we lived together, it was so eye-opening. And the, one of the common statements was I'd never actually been able to interact with like black people before I came to, I went to Brunel, to Brunel University. So it was like an eye-opening thing, but a lot of people they don't go to universities where it's as diverse as Brunel was. So their experience is literally white folk, white folk, white folk, white folk, or black folk, black folk, black folk, black folk. So when it comes to actually interacting, there's, there's no empathy for the other side because they don't see it. Like for me, my stepdad's white. My little brother and sister are mixed race. Um, he's been my stepdad since I was, what, 13, I believe. And now I'm 31. So he's been in my life. I've met his, our families are all intermingled. So my experience has been very, very different. And I think it's a very positive thing for me. One one of the things I definitely want to ask you about is, you know, you, uh, and you you work in the business world and uh, we obviously yep. can't name where you work for, but I, I can say it's banking, can't I? I think I can say it's, yeah, yeah, one, it's one of the big banking groups anyway, which we won't say. But, you know, what are the issues in that sector? Because that sector sort of strikes me as a sector that's been the same for, as an outsider, this is an area I know nothing about. So, you know, please excuse <laughs> me if I'm wrong, but it strikes me as a sector that has uh has it i don't know it doesn't feel like it's changed in many years it's felt like it's always been kind of uh white men in suits and just uh, um you know and, and kind of kept the same power structures for years so what are the the issues in in that world of structural racism and inequality and have you felt that in the time that you've worked there things have changed and improved and is it more progressive than i might give it credit for as an outsider i think probably before last year i would say that diversity was always an agenda you know, like it's always something that they wanted to do, but it was nothing they, that was done in the banking world. And I've been fortunate to, to work for a lot of different banks. So American banks and British banks, and I've seen how they differ. But one thing I'd say is of recent, I'll definitely say I'm a lot more hopeful in terms of them. Because I think, again, last year was a massive turning point where a lot of firms actually acknowledge that actually, uh, when because it's true, you just look up and you see that there's a massive disparity between white men versus white women versus like it's basically white men all at the top and then it just trickles down you might see spots of maybe white women then it trickles down you might see a couple of white men and I think that's something that was massively highlighted because when you look at senior leadership there's no way it looks like you and if I'm working somewhere and I want to progress and I look up and I don't see myself it almost makes me feel like is that because like I just can't get there but I do think recently it's something that's massively been highlighted in my firm it's something that we're continuing to push the agenda on and um just to, to credit my firm as well they have done a lot of different things they've started this thing called one million black women where they're really it's in the us but they're going to invest um i think it's one billion pound dollars into like female entrepreneurs black female entrepreneurs in the states because they realize that that's a massive market and i think when you have banks and tech firms and consultancy firms, they do the data, they do data analysis, they gather all the data, they go ask people the questions and they come back with their reports and they see there's discrepancies and there's disparity in just due to sex, due to race. The fact that the government have gone away and done the exact same thing and their findings seem to be completely different to what I've seen in every other bank, every other corp um, corporation, we spoke about the um, Black British Award, Business Awards, right? And they're the middle report. And I think it's that, it's like everybody, if nine people out of 10 are telling you there's a problem and then this one person who represents everybody is telling you there's not, that's the issue. Yeah, that's, yeah. Well, it's well, it's because, you know, I, I sort of always feel like the government can't be responsible for anything. They can't be accountable for anything. So they've got to have no racism and no corruption. You know, it's a- it, But then what's just, their purpose? 
That's a really like, good question. Is, <laughs> that's, it's wild. It's, it's almost like it seems to me if I created a business, it's like me saying I could be CEO of this business, managing all these people and not actually care about what goes on with my company it's that it's like actually if i'm ceo it means i account for all these people i account for what's going on with my company so if your government if you're if you actually make the effort to go into politics go study whatever you need to study or know whoever you need to know and get put into a position where you get to speak for the majority of people then speak correctly don't speak based on off of your like i don't know i guess your upbringing or your lived experiences and discount other people's as um this not credible because I don't know. One person told you so. Like it just doesn't make sense. No, they, they, it doesn't make sense. So it's you know it's a very. It's, I wish I could. I wish I knew. I wish I knew how what their purpose is and, <laughs> and, and how to how to make it better. Um, it is. It's appalling. I, I was going to ask with because it sounds like that you're you know the the, the company always is is being really proactive. But like, is it? You said that's been the past year. One of my sort of worries, uh, and I say this again as an outsider to, to the industry, but, you know, I knew of a lot of companies having, hey, a diversity day or unconscious bias, but then that was like, oh, we've done that, tick box, move on. It's, yeah. You're saying that, that, that things have changed now and they're actively doing progressive things that are seeking to change the structure or is there still a lot of that kind of, hey, we're highlighting that we're doing something and then that's the one thing done and they never do anything else again? I think it's too soon to tell. I think things haven't changed, but things are changing. And I guess the next couple of years, we'll see if it was just an agenda point and we move forward, or it was actually, this is something that we're actually invested into doing. So I guess the outcome will be seen, right? It's yet to be seen. But from what I, I guess, from what I can feel, I do feel that things are changing for the better. Yeah. Well, that's really important. You know, if, if you're working within it and you feel that it's changing for the better, that's got to be a good sign, hasn't it? You know, if you feel like I say this, you, right. <laughs> I say this with a, with a huge caveat is that I think I'm a lot more positive than most people. And I've also, um, I've witnessed like firsthand, I remember I can actually speak on this because I don't work at KPMG, but I went <laughs> to a KPMG event where they invited like a hundred of the brightest young minds to fix like common problems. So they put you into subgroups. Some could be focusing on climate change. Some could be focusing on diversity. Some could be focusing on different like recycling and things like that. My group was diversity. And the whole premise of this, um, I guess this day was to bring you together. You get into groups, you find really, really creative ways to try and fix these problems. So my diversity, it was like an unconscious bias training. It was, my group was had like 12 people, maybe like two white males. One was gay, a couple brown people, a couple of black people. That was just mixed up, which was great. So we had this really, really great idea. And it was like an unconscious bias trainer, training where you put on like what are those glasses called where you could, you're able to see <laughs> no you have no clue right, like what, VR, what VR stuff you made or, that's right. it that's it VR glasses and you basically go into like meeting rooms and you experience life as the person whether it be a gay guy whether it be a black woman whether it be a woman and you see that the reaction so we present scenarios after we presented this there was um four judges three white men and one lady I believe I can't remember too much however okay so after we've done this training everyone loved us well done you guys smashed it, it was great I'm loving it because I think it was the best idea ever. So one of the white men, he was very, very senior at KPMG, came over to our group and we're sitting in a circle at this point. So we all assume he's going to come over and say, well done. We love it. Went straight to the one white boy and didn't even look at anyone else and said, that was so great. What you guys done? Like, how did you come up with that? The white guy tried to deflect and say, yeah, like it was, um, 
all of us working together again the guy took it back and was like no you're great here's my card what's your linkedin add me it's the details with the white guy and walks off and i remember sitting there and i said out loud that's it's so wild that we've literally just spoken about this and the white guy has actually done the exact thing in which we're trying to break away Ugh. from and I think that's when I realised that my, and I guess it's the same thing, that like my experience is different to someone who actually works in that firm and sees that happening. If I hadn't experienced that firsthand, I would have been like, it's never going to be that blatant. There's no way people could be that blatant. But I saw it and it hit me. And I think I remember everybody in that group looking around at each other like, wow. Yeah. God, that's awful. That is all. I mean, yeah. I think one of the things about that, that business and banking is it, you know, it's, it's built on a history of, well, it's built on history of slavery. It's built on a history of so many yep. other factors that are about power and people at the top maintaining power. It's, you know, it's it, it, one of the most capitalist industries <laughs> there is. And I sort of wonder if that, does that need to be addressed before it can move forward in terms of equality as as a as a sector? And obviously I'm asking someone that works within it. So I don't want you, <laughs> you know, you're, you're going to have a more positive view of the industry that, that, than I might do. But, you know, it's, its whole thing is about power and about getting money and that often requires people to be exploited somewhere down the line how does how how does that need to be addressed or apologized for or changed before anything else can happen i mean i think it's a strange question because even like last year you've got all the apologies from all the businesses especially there's this rush for people to post their um stats in terms of people that work in their companies and that was really interesting and we saw a lot of companies say oh my gosh we've posted our stats we have like two percent ethnic minority and then it it was just like massive disparities in terms of people and then when it came to the leadership it was completely separate and we had a lot of those apologies so I think apologies to me I almost feel like don't mean anything I think it's it's the action that matters it's like if I can stand here and apologize for something I've done but if my actions continue to be the same then that's nobody yeah. benefit yeah it doesn't make a difference I think it's that it's like I think we need to give these I guess, well, I guess we have to give everybody time to live it out like don't tell me show me you know I almost don't want it to be like an apology I almost want it to be a day when I re- wake up and I'm like wow my bank is like super diverse like look at all the the senior partners who are black or Asian or you know like gay you know or female and I think that's it I almost I always want to notice it just on an off chance rather than someone saying to me this is every this is what we've done this is what we're going to do and then I have to kind of like monitor to see how far you've gone is, is there something and I'm, I'm possibly going off on a bit of a tangent here but you know there was the the extinction rebellion protest the other day at Barclays where they're smashing windows and saying that you're not you know you're investing in in too many uh you know carbon um oh gosh my brain's just melted they're sort of polluting fuels you know and mm-hmm. um uh, uh, and you know does it kind of for for a bank to move on, not just in racial diversity, are, are we have are we going to have to see a change in where they invest, in what they kind of in in how they pay people in in those sort of sectors as well? Because all these things ultimately end up with discrimination, exploitation at the bottom end of whoever is affected by these things. You know, is, yeah, and, I but, think, and obviously that would completely change banking as it is if it was the case. So it's quite a yeah, big and and that's that's where it's it's hard because I remember I don't I can't remember his name is Brian Friedman, but it's some old guy back in the day who does <laughs> business. <laughs> the business of business is business and I think that's always stuck with me because with Barclays I used to actually work there funnily enough but I do think that uh, like there's sustainable growth funds that you can invest in there's I think there's a way that you can sit like you can actually have options of 
responsible investing I don't necessarily think I'd ever see a day where people basically say I'm not going to invest in oil anymore I'm not going to invest in all these things that are harmful to our environment because again the business of business is business they're there to make money as their number one goal right that's how they pay people that's how they interact that's how they invest wealthy people's money so I don't think that they would ever step back and say because it's not a charity right and I guess that's something I've also had to um, acknowledge is that I can't expect these firms to go all out for me because even if they say I'm their number one priority or diversity is the number one priority it's not it's money it's to make money they don't monitor um quarterly diversity reports they monitor quarterly profits so that says it all right but I do think that there is a way that they need to actually be held accountable for what they're investing in so if you're investing in a lot of things that are actually detrimental to the earth that we live on then I think it's it's well be like if you're at Barclays go protest and I do think there's a power in the people that the, your voice matters and I think where before a lot of people would have these thoughts and sit back in their chairs and say I can't really say anything because if I say something I'm gonna there's gonna be repercussions now we're seeing a lot more people who are brave enough to stand up and stand out and say that's I just don't support this and I think that's great like, I think that is amazing and we see it not only at business level we also see it in schools right like I have um, I'm a youth leader in my spare time um, and one of my youth, her school's Pimlico Academy. I'm not too sure if you watched the news, but they had they held a protest. Yeah, um, they were brilliant. They were amazing. Those yeah, kids. yeah, massively. And it's because they saw um, some rules that were going to get enforced that were discriminatory. You know, to Afro hair, you can't have part lines in your hair. I have lines in my hair. Imagine if my firm said to me, "I can't have lines in my hair." That means I can't wear my hair braids, which supports my natural hairstyle. Can't wear my hair in cornrows. I can't do so much. So they realised that and you, hijabs have to be a plain colour. And I think, no, that like you can't, don't, if you're going to make rules to enforce them, don't enforce them. That makes me have to change myself to adhere to what you deem as, um, I don't know, looking correct or looking professional, because and I guess that's the biggest thing, right? Yeah, it's it's really interesting, you know, that kind of thing. It's such a small protest that people can do, I think, is just put their money elsewhere. Like, that makes such a big difference. I mean, even sort of thing, yeah. I know it's a different thing, but, like, remember when Black Panther came out of cinema, and everyone went to see it, and they went, oh, yeah, films with black cast do, do work. And it's like, yeah, because, yeah. like, it's putting your money in, in those sort of places or taking it away from places makes a massive impact on people who, who predominantly care about money. And I think that's what you have to do as well, because I think sometimes we feel like we're a lot, we don't have as much say as we do. If I don't like somewhere, I'm not going to invest. And I think even with Black Panther, corporations would tell you years before, no, films with Black cast aren't going to do it well. It was one of the biggest like record-breaking films in terms of how much it took in and even continues to take in, right? So it's that. It's like until they see the proof that, ah, this works. People actually value diversity and people actually want to see this on screen. It's like they almost feel like they go by their own assumptions that no, they probably don't. They just want to see this like white, super middle-class American family. And it's and that's what I like about what's going on now. It's like we can actually speak through where we shop, through if, and but it's also the other side, right? Like if I, if Barclays are managing my money and I say to them, I don't want you to invest in any funds that are harmful to the environment, then they can't invest. Then they're going to have to actually go actively search for sustainable growth funds and things that are actually going to help. But it works both ways, lower down and higher up as well. 
Yeah, it's such an important small way to protest things, I think, definitely. Well, it depends on how much money you've got. I suppose it could be a big way. For me, it'd be a very small way. Um, yeah, it's... Uh... <laughs> it's small. Listen, it all adds up. Like, I think that's the beautiful thing. I think most protests are in silence. It's just like there's some shops I just don't support. Mm. And it's not me broadcasting, oh, my God, I'm not going to shop here because, F, like, X, Y, Z. I just don't shop there. And I think that's something sometimes we forget. We feel like it has to be a collective because if I feel like someone or a company doesn't align to the values that I support, I'm just not going to shop there. And I haven't got to scream it from the rooftops. It's just me taking my coins and taking it somewhere else. But to think that it doesn't have impact, like, believe you me, it does. You know, because if I have the same, if I have the mindset that I'm not going to support something that doesn't align to my personal values and you have the same mindset, then they're going to realize that their stock prices are going down and they're going to do something about it. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, we'll be back with D in a minute, but first... British politics is the only long-running drama where the return of a classic villain isn't at all exciting. Case in point, David Cameron, the arse imprint on a leather sofa of a man, has reared his unfathomably red face back into the news these past few weeks. Or more correctly, has had his face reared by the press catching foul wind of his attempts to lobby various Downing Street mugs to get funding for a now-collapsed company. Yes, it seems his career of trying to cut public funding wherever possible has now evolved into a more subtle plan of sucking the last bits of public funding away for his own financial benefit. If you haven't heard the story, because either you're incredibly lucky and have actual fun things to do with your life, or because every news story this week is just telling you that a man is indeed still dead, then let me start you at the very beginning. Greensill Capital was a financial services company, or to translate, they made money by pissing about with other companies' money. 
I'd love to explain to you exactly what they did with reverse factoring and future accounts receivables finance, but this is still meant to be vaguely an entertaining podcast and not a sleep aid, so just trust me when I say they helped companies hide their debts, make latest fuck payments to suppliers, and borrow money for things that they hadn't even done yet. That risky, careless money juggling unsurprisingly led to insolvency when in March the company securing the loans Greensill were taking out to pay off other companies' debts said fuck that for a laugh and so Greensill found themselves unable to pay a $140 million loan back to its lenders and ultimately a whole load of people have lost an absolute shitload of cash because no one learns anything in that sector proving that an expensive education is yet another pointless waste of money. Lex Greensill, who sounds like an animated frog villain but looks like Steve Carell's worst role, was an unpaid advisor to David Cameron's government, and I suppose looking down the line he definitely wasn't worth paying for, to be fair. Something Cameron did get right for once. Greensill's appointment was supposedly part of the civil service drive to improve efficiency, so maybe he just advised passing the buck on to others at a discount and then hoping you'll get bailed out when it comes back round. And then in 2018, David Cameron was hired as an unpaid advisor to Greensill, which again, sounds like it might not make sense after his main achievement seemed to revolve around leaving everyone else to mop up his mess. But as that is largely what Greensill did as a company too, you can see why they gave him a job and stock options that could have been worth £70 million. Now it seems that in between hiding an obscenely large shed and writing memoirs that likely read as a dark, dark version of a Dick King Smith novel, Cameron was lobbying the British government to chuck some of the emergency Covid loans to his new work home. Yes, no better, more secure, risk-free use for emergency funds than to fund a place that gives emergency funds to places. It's like a campaign to support jobs for unnecessary middlemen, which they probably pay someone else to do for them at an exploitative lower rate. Cameron's lobbying involved texting and ringing the Chancellor Rishi Sunak, which is a silly idea as Dave had been far better off getting hold of him on Instagram DMs. Sunak voluntarily published his text to Davo, where he told Cameron that he'd pushed the Treasury team to help Greensill. I don't think that's a literal pushing, by the way, as that's what the Home Secretary does. Cameron also lobbied a senior Downing Street aide, which I think is senior in terms of authority, not aptitude. And none of that was successful, I should say, as the Treasury rejected the proposals, but Greensill did have access to tens of millions of pounds of taxpayer cash under a different Covid scheme called the Coronavirus Large Business Interruption Loan Scheme, which they will now never pay back because they went all insolvent. So the question is, did the fact that Puff Facey, Cameron, used to be Prime Minister and have Rishi's digits on his speed dial, give him special access that, say, another company wouldn't have if they could only contact the Treasury by applying the usual way via the gov.uk website that seems to be based on the user experience of someone who's highly skilled at choose-your-own-adventure stories set in the administrative department of, of Escher's estate? Well, I mean, clearly it gave him special access, but the way in which our oh-so-democratic governance system works means that because it was more than two years since Cameron has been in office, he didn't have to clear the role with the vetting committee for this sort of thing, and because he was a Greensill employee, albeit an unpaid one who was just working for Stockshare, he didn't need to declare himself on the Registrar of Lobbyists. Who are the Registrar of Lobbyists? Well, funny enough, they're a group that was set up by David Cameron's own government in 2014. The Transparency of Lobbying, Non-Party Campaigning and Trade Union Administration Act of the same year makes it an offence for someone who isn't a registered lobbyist to directly lobby ministers or civil servants. But if you lobby on behalf of an organisation, it's all dandy for you to not let anyone know that you, former Prime Minister who's all too aware of how public money works as you wouldn't let any schools, libraries or councils have it, would now like a big wodge of it so you can get millions to add to your offshore shed fund. That means it was also legal and proper for Cameron to take Lex Greensill to meet Health Secretary Matt Hancock for a private drink in 2019, where they discussed a payment scheme converting salaries for doctors and nurses into bonds and selling them for profit. That scheme was used in some areas of the NHS, which based on my limited knowledge, and hey, please write in if I've got this wrong, NHS staff were paid weekly or daily via Greensill who would earn a profit on it with the interest, and then they'd pay the original sum to the staff member once a month. 
Yes, making money off risking money that someone else is earning by saving lives. I don't think that could sound more massively fucked up and sinister if you ask Kevin Spacey to read it direct to camera as one of his weird Christmas video tweets that absolutely no one wants. Cameron has non-apologised, as is his remit, saying merely that he should have contacted the government through only the most formal of channels, so I guess he'll do it all over again, but in a tuxedo or something. Cameron did warn when he was Prime Minister that lobbying would become the next big scandal, so he should have known he was just setting things up so he'd actually be correct about something at one point in his life. This is nothing new, and the past year has shown more than ever the ways in which private companies procure money from the state is definitely no level playing field. Or if it is, the playing field is owned by a friend of Matt Hancock, and he rents it out to do lunges in to try and impress some teenagers, and now the playing field owner has a billion pound contract to use the field as a test site. We only know about this case because it's David Cameron and reports were leaked to the Times, but there's almost certainly tons more cases like it that are legal only because the rules are shit. The Advisory Committee on Business Appointments normally meets four times a year, but has only met once in the last year and a half and didn't even publish any minutes for that one unless they're pretending to be so transparent all the words were done in invisible ink. Government accountability is so low even Greensill wouldn't have wanted to turn it into bonds and sell it for profit. Labour are campaigning for the lobbying register to include in-house lobbyists like Cameron, so that means the opposition will probably mention it once and then assume that it'll be done and not understand why it doesn't happen. Oh, and of course, the government are investigating it by themselves, but uh, yeah. It'd be lovely to think there'll be repercussions from this, but as it's all coming out during an eight-day media blackout on political press conferences, interviews, ministerial visits and announcements from the Conservatives or Labour, because hey, it's a week to bury all sorts of bad news for the country, apparently. Sunak and Hancock won't have to answer anything, and Cameron will probably go back to enjoying his millions plus the £115,000 he gets a year from state funding to run his own private office that he takes nearly a month to write a response about the lobbying story from. But then I guess it makes sense that any interest the press might have in Cameron is immediately skimmed off and returned at a much later date, as something with less than the original value. Further still, Greensill's administrators have found that they can't verify invoices underpinning loans to its top client, Sanjeev Gupta, who's known for his business in the steel industry, as in the metal, not the other kind, despite it looking like that's where his expertise might actually lie. Several companies say they've never done business with Gupta despite being named on the invoices via Greensill, and the two have been accused by MPs of running a potential Ponzi scheme. Still, if getting people to part with a lot of money and the false promise of future golden times isn't the theme song for the last decade of Conservative governments, then I'm not sure what is. And now, back to D. Yeah, that's such good advice. Really good advice. Um, I wanted to ask you about. Uh, well, I wanted to ask you about the curve. Now I know I'm, I'm not going to spoil the things, but I know we, we, just before we record, you said you're going through a rebrand, so it's not going to be the curve scene. I'm not going to ask you what it's going to be. We'll find out <laughs> soon. Um, but if listeners do sort of keep an eye uh, on everything that, that Diana's doing, um, but you know what. I love about well the podcast. I know you held a lot of events. And you did uh, you did a lot of work with the curve um, about black people in well in different spaces, as you said, in sort of industry sector and education, lots of things. Um, and I loved how sort of listening to it. Just it's just a conversation. It's just the sort of conversation you don't hear a lot on TV. It's by people with lived experiences yep. talking about it, going through it, saying this is straight up how life is and what's wrong with it and what needs to change. And I just yeah. wondered how you feel. There's not, there's not any of that. I was going to say there's not enough of that. There's not really any of that. I don't see any of that on on mainstream TV, at least. Um, what do you feel the sort of most problematic ways are that that racism inequality is discussed in not just media, but I guess workplaces? And and how do you feel it needs to change? Like how how do we get more chats like you have on the curve in places? I think. Well, one of the most dangerous ways is what we've seen right now of the government. Right, like a lot of people will take that report. And take it as, yep, they've done their research. That's basically what it is. And I think sometimes just do your own research. 
I think there's a danger in thinking that the news that we consume, the reports that we read are fact. You know, everyone can always tell their own story and spin it to look however they want to take it. So I think one of the things that I would probably say is um, do your own research, but also in terms of having a conversation, I'd say listen to our podcast first of all. And I say this because our podcast started and I think it was even 2016. It was way before last year. And it was because we kept experiencing things in different banks. And when we would talk about it to colleagues, it just didn't make sense. And then we came together once and I think I was talking about something that I'd experienced. And um, yeah, I think the boy kind of said, oh my God, I've gone through that as well. And it was a conversation. And I said, I think we should record this and I think we should put it out because the way I had to navigate finance or navigate even the working world, like my family, I only realized I was middle-class like two weeks ago, if I'm completely honest, (laughs) but my family, that's not my background. So navigating finance was so tough for me mentally like everything it was tough I've suffered from imposter syndrome I felt like I wasn't good enough to be there even navigating spaces that you get backhanded comments I remember like my university's Brunel it's not a Ruskut university but I think it's one of the best universities and it was perfect one for me but I remember when I started in my bank now and it was my first day and I was super nervous because all I'd heard about this bank is that they really work you and like it's one of those places where you just need to be like on job and I remember the first day this girl I think she went to I can't remember maybe Cambridge or Oxford she said oh like what university did you go to and I told her and she goes oh and you're working here Ugh. and I remember looking at her and thinking oh okay so you but then I guess the me and me because I'd gone through that my whole career was like yeah and it's weird because your parents will be paid thousands to to school. <laughs> I'm paid nothing. And we're in the exact same place, you know? And perspective matters. And it's that. It's like, actually, we were having these... And I could only say that because I'd been in finance for eight years at that point, seven, eight years, and I'd built my backbone. And I knew that even if my background looks different to everybody here, I deserve to be here because I fought my way to be here. So no one could tell me anything, you know? But an analyst or someone coming in straight from university would have responded to that completely different or maybe wouldn't have responded at all, but internalised it. And so we started the curve to have these conversations and we realised it wasn't just in finance. It was our friends in uh, working in law firms, our friends working in the health system, our friends who are psychiatrists, like everybody experienced some sort of like, some, everyone had lived experiences, somewhat different, but more or less the same, under the same umbrella, right? And I think that's what we brought to the front. And then from there, we started doing loads of events so I'd always say listen to our podcast because it's different discussions from different industries and we also have one before what being a white ally was a thing of one of my friends who I love to bits he is like white upper class through and through went to Loughborough like rugby lad but one of my favorite favorite people and he came on the podcast like three two years ago and we talked about needing white allies and he spoke about how like before he didn't even interacted with that he had grown up interacting with um, black people so actually doing that and understanding that he said it opened up his mind and his like life to so much different experiences and now he's one of my, my favorite people so it's that but it's like he I think there's a I can't I feel like I'm waffling first of all mm. but I guess I say this all to say I think that sometimes people grow up in a bubble and they accept the fact that they're in a bubble but what you need to do is realize that being comfortable comfortable isn't necessarily going to grow you 
stepping out of that leads to so much more experiences and that's what he experienced what I experienced right like imagine if I had been closed off and decided I'm not going to work anywhere that I don't see myself I don't even know where I'd be working right, right now if I'm completely honest it's um I want to ask you about the white aloe thing in a minute but the the what sort of response did you get especially when you started the podcast from people that were listening because like I said it's just something just hearing your chat is something that I've never heard outside of friends talking before you know I've just you never get it yeah. on the radio you never get it anywhere else it must have had quite an impact on people being able to listen to those conversations it did and it was it was great because I guess because our podcast was never for profit like it was never it was more like a passion project so there wasn't no any expectation past us getting our conversation out there but the way that everyone received it a lot of we got especially the corporate world like really embraced us because they lived that experience where people reaching out to us with questions like I've just started in this bank this is what's happened to me can you help me and it was great because naturally I'm a helper I think initially like we had some people as an example um my friend we called him twig on the podcast so I'll call him twig here um, my Loughborough friend so twig he didn't understand he didn't think this happened until he decided to listen to my podcast and he said that's what started to actually open him up to like things I'd gone through because naturally I used to work with him so I would never be like in my life this is what I've gone through step by step but when I'm talking to my friends I was able to bring that out and he would ask me questions I said that's it like don't be scared to ask questions he'd always come back and say like on your podcast the other week you said this or this person said that like is that like can you you know let's unpack this and we'll talk about it and I think it gave him so much insight into a life that was so different to his but he didn't just discredit it he actually took it in and I think that's it like be brave enough to have the conversation and if you don't have anyone to have a conversation with dm me like I'm happy to have conversations with people but I honestly say that listen to our podcast because it's not just me and my two friends talking it's me and my two friends talking to like people that we know and people we don't who actually reached out and asked us to be on the podcast and they talk through their experiences in different industries. So if you can't relate to finance, you'll be able to relate to healthcare. If you can't relate to healthcare, you'll be able to relate to someone trying to get into their first job and someone going for a promotion, you're not getting it because they're black or because they're female. Like we have so many different perspectives that you'll can literally find like so much a variety of thought on that pod on our podcast. I was going to say though, it's, it's what I feel like it, everyone that you speak to is relatable because it's a conversation with a, a human being who's telling you about their human experiences. And it's just yeah. fascinating hearing people's lives, even, even the sort of upsetting experiences they've had, but it's still going, I'm j it's just really insightful hearing it come straight from someone's, you're not hearing a representative. You're not hearing someone who's done a review yeah. on it. You're hearing someone say, this is what I've been through. And, and I think human stories like that are always going to grab you a lot better than, than stats and everything else, aren't they? They feel, you know, much yeah. better way to communicate things. Um, and there was also people on the flip side of that who would listen to our podcast like I had some friends in my, my where I used to work who like who are white and they were even Asian you know they just didn't get it and then last year when everything happened I got quite a few messages like I am so 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 sorry that I didn't even take time to understand I just like discredited straight away so I do think that a lot of people who didn't, under, like initially I did get a lot of, not backlash, but it was uncomfortable to be in certain spaces and so with certain people because they just didn't understand it or they almost thought it was a woe me experience. But then when obviously everything happened last year, I think it opened up their eyes. So I definitely got a lot more messages from loads of the same people saying, "I'm um, yeah, I, I just didn't know. 
That's fascinating. It's like you mentioned earlier about the sort of lack of empathy, isn't it? That and, until until uh, something kind of clicks in people's heads, they sort of think, "Oh, I've got my own stuff to deal with. I'm not bothered about anyone else's yeah. lives." You know, and there's been a lot of that. A lot of that with the, the pandemic and everything, really, which is is quite bleak. Um, and I wanted to ask you about that. You sort of mentioned the white ally thing earlier, and I know that um, your co-host on the podcast, uh, Sov, wrote a, a blog on on your website about it last year. Um, and yeah. also, as I said, the book that I read. Uh, the other week, Emma Dabry's one talks about it quite a lot, about how white ally is actually a really patronising thing because it's saying, I'm an ally and I'm going to come and help you. And actually it's like, no, black people can help themselves and, and we need to sort of form your own, you know, and it's not about it's not about helping, it's about understanding and it's about just sort of uniting together rather than being a kind of saviour complex. And I, and I wondered, if, A, how, how you felt about it, but also, you know, Black Lives Matter, does that feel like the beginning of black people being able to control the narrative of how things are and, and how things are going to change from now on? Because that felt like such a powerful moment where we're going, where, where just loads of people said, no, no, we're we're going to deal with how you see us now. We're not going to let you yeah. control this. I think to start with the second question first, I think um, 100%, because I think sometimes you, again, I, I don't trust the media too much because I do think that they enforce whatever opinion they have. So... And I think that's it. We've counted on the media for years to enforce their na- to like spit, tell the, tell the story of our lived experiences, and they failed to do that. So sometimes you realise if no one's going to do this for you but yourself. And what I love about the Black Lives Matter movement was that it was us taking back the story and us telling the narrative and us speaking our, our lived experiences without it being, um, like you said, without a representative coming and dulling it down or a representative coming and making it more palatable, like. I would tell my experience the way that I've experienced it. It hasn't got to be palatable to you because that was a massive thing initially as well, right? Like um, you'd go into, like, I think it happened to me at work. It happened at work a lot. You'd go into work and then you have a bunch of people saying, oh my God, this thing's happened. Like, how do you feel? Like, but it almost felt like in order for people to understand your experience, you had to basically relive your trauma. But it's like, you'll never tell someone who, a woman who'd been sexually abused at work or, uh, that to, oh in order for me to believe you you need to sit in front of me and tell me your story and then I'm going to decide if I think this is vi- like vi- vi- viable or not and it almost felt like for us well for me and a couple of my friends that that was what we had to do and it was almost like a a death by a thousand cuts I guess because it was this thought of I have to keep telling this story to so many different people I have so many catch-ups and and I don't want to say no because this could be your time for education. This could help us in the greater, that great, greater scheme of things. However, this is like it's like reliving your trauma again and again and again. And I think what was beautiful about that is that initially, I think I would read people's discomfort and I'd say, okay, take it back. Don't tell, like you know, take it back a little bit. But after a while, I thought, no, like I can't make this palatable to you because this is how I've experienced it. And I was able to tell my story in my way. And Black Lives Matter was just like the umbrella effect of that, right? Like it was everybody saying that, like, I know, especially now, I know that the government believes that, you know, my story doesn't matter and they could put it down to different factors other than what, it's, what I say it is. But actually, no, this is what I say it is. And this is what I'm going to stand by. And I guess the first question was Sov's um, essay on white um, allies. I go by, it's a strange one because I do, I see exactly where they're coming from. And I think there is this, I guess we did a podcast called Do We Need White Allies? And that was the one that Twig was on. And we actually had a, a real conversation on that. And I think I could see how some people see it as a, a saviour complex. But I think I take a step back and see it for the bigger picture in terms of all we're asking is for people to be human. 
like have empathy to see people see people's experiences that are different than your own and acknowledge them for what they actually are and I don't necessarily see it as white allies Asian allies whatever I just see it as someone who is part of the fight like someone who just wants to see a world where I don't even need to call your white ally. You're just a friend, you know? You're just someone who, if you see something that looks wrong, you're going to call it out. If you see some someone say something to someone that's not nice, you're going to stand up for that person. It hasn't got to be labelled under white allyship or being a white ally. It's just you being human. If I saw someone in the street being someone shouting them for no reason, I'm going to stand up for that person, right? Like, if I saw something happening I didn't, I didn't agree with, I'm going to stand up for that person. I'm going to speak out. And it's just that. It's asking to speak out. It's not you having to portray white allyship or come under the label of white ally. It's just you literally being human. That's all we're asking. Yeah, which is, is, is again, that sort of problem of labelling, everything being labelled and everything being, it yeah. has to come under it. Um, it it's, I wondered how you felt about the, because it, again, sort of friends of mine who thought it was maybe the one good bit of the government's race report was that the scrapping the, the BAME or BAME label because, you know, there's a there's brilliant stand-up called Darren Harriet who's got a lovely bit about the fact they may as well call it Black Asian, etc, etc. It's just like another... another and, and I did think that out of everything that they said in that report, that is is that a good... that You know, that seemed very problematic to a lot of people, that yeah. acronym. And, and again, it's just sort of sectioning people off and going, this is a different group of people to white everyone else you know um did you did you sort of agree with that bit or is that a just or was that just kind oh. of a distracted you know not, something that's not even worth discussing in terms of the bigger picture I mean everything's worth discussing I think BAME I've always hated it as an acronym anyway I just think again it's just lumping people everyone who doesn't conf- doesn't fit white is into BAME you know black Asian minority it's everybody fits into BAME and I think so I've always disliked it anyway because I feel like when once you group people, it's almost a form of segregation in terms of how you handle them, right? So, listen, scrap BAME, you know, call it for what it is. If we're talking about black people, we're talking about black people. If we're talking about Asian people, we're talking about Asian people. Don't just lump people into one one random band and say, yep, this is BAME, this is what we're doing for BAME people because it's not specific enough. And it almost doesn't even tell you what they're really doing because if I say I'm going to reach out and help BAME communities, whose community is that? Is that mine? Is that the community down the road? Like, are you? Like, what are you actually doing? Yeah, well, there's also the issue, isn't there? Of even you say Asian community or you say Black community, you're ignoring that there's Afro-Caribbean, there's Afro-American, the Afri- exactly. uh, you know, Africa. There's all the different communities within that. It's again, we're just sort of putting people into these little groups to kind of go right. We'll ignore that bunch. <laughs> we'll ignore yep. that bunch rather than saying, as you say, we're all people and we've all got individual issues that we need to. Uh, have that's understood. it yeah it's, it's so no, simple right. isn't it when you sort of but like like you, you said it before that's so simple it's empathy and understanding and it's so easy to go well it's not easy but it's it's it it's not said clearly enough when, when you say it out loud like that it seems like oh yeah it's really it's really obvious isn't it just stop stop yeah. being a dick to people it's really obvious <laughs> it's so hard. literally that's it and it's free you haven't got to pay any money you haven't got to like just be human that's yeah. literally all we're asking yeah yeah, well, thank you so much for, for coming on, on the show today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And I, the one question I ask all the interviewees on the show, um, with just the hope of kind of furthering good information, really, is that apart, apart from uh, your podcast, obviously, uh, whenever it returns, um, what other writers, sites, podcasts, what, what what would you recommend that listeners check out, not just in terms of, of racial politics, but also business politics, or, or just what do you go for? What do you find useful to listen to? What would you recommend? 
Um, I've actually gone on like a social media esque media cleanse. So <laughs> yeah, I noticed when up. I was looking you up. I was so impressed. I was really jealous. Yeah, <laughs> that's also because of where I work. So I think when I did the podcast before, um, working in finance and having some sort of social platform, it's almost like you know opposing sides, right? So I had to be very, very careful in the name I gave myself at work versus the name I gave on the podcast. You couldn't be able to find me, and I think that's kind of stuck. But a podcast, I think there's a podcast called Take Flight Podcast, which I find extremely, it's quite good in terms of, they like flip houses, they talk about business. And I went to uni with a couple of them as well. There's also a podcast called, this is one that I love, and it's called um, E.T. The Hip Hop Preacher. Let me actually get the right name. because So this podcast is more so about, um, I have a thing for work ethic. I don't know why, but I'm literally drawn to like people who have a strong work ethic and how they do it and how they manage to get up at 5 a.m. in the morning and do all these amazing things. And E.T., his whole thing is like coaching. Um, He's come from a a Christian perspective sometimes, but not normally. But he's just great. He coaches a lot of the like NFL people, the NBA people who I used to like stand and love. So that's a really good podcast as well. And obviously ours, obviously your podcast now, because, you know, they're already probably on it to be fair but yeah no. <laughs> and also just, just type in black british podcast there's so many brilliant cool thank you tons that's amazing um right was there anything i should have asked you before i stopped recording was there anything I um i guess i have a question for you actually oh, yeah go for it so obviously your experience as a white male like what have you found most effective in terms of understanding like the other side right like has there anything that you've done or you've found to be eye-opening for you in order for how you're able to like see the issues that are put in front of you i think it is is talking to me but i'm i'm very uh i suppose lucky but in my, my job is, is stand-up comedy my main job and i go around travel the country and i talk to different people and i talk to people in different areas i talk to different audiences um and i get to you know sometimes travel with it and and you just speak to so many different people and you often speak to them while you're on stage you speak to them after the show and you speak to them you know having a drink at the bar and you just hear about their lives and hear about the areas they live in and the issues that they're going through where they are and it really widened my mind massively just to how similar we are. I, I mean, I, I did a, um, I did a, a, a stand-up show about a few years ago, um, which I won't go on about, but it, but it was about like when, when astronauts go into space, they have this thing where they look back on the earth and they get this thing called the overview effect and they look at the mm-hmm. earth and go, Oh yeah, we're all one planet. Oh my God, it's so obvious. <laughs> and we're all connected and there's no borders and we're all just like, and, and I sort of, uh, that really, you know, hearing about that, reading about that and reading how it affected them it just made me go oh, I wish I feel like we all need to be doing this but from here and it's um I just I just try and take in as much information as possible talk to as many people read as much stuff um but it can also get I mean I, I suppose that the thing that I've noticed lately and especially the past year this I've got to be careful how to talk about this really because it doesn't say, I don't want to sound unsympathetic but it's also you take on so many there's so many issues in the world right now and so many things that are wrong that it's also quite overwhelming to take on everyone's problems and you have to kind of be careful not to just be depressed about the state of everything because everything you know yeah. it's 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 about I, I think like like well, I really like your kind of mantra of we just got to be human got to be you know be kind and have empathy sort of positive solutions to it are really useful um, and positive solutions rather than just telling people what they've done wrong or what's going wrong saying this is something that we can do this is something small that we can do is really useful so that you don't just meet things with a block you don't just go well I'm not going to understand yep. you because I can't do anything about it and it's nothing to do with me like if you say 
you know, just do this small thing and that would make a massive difference, then it, it it's 100%. fine that it, it would change. I don't know. I, I find that really helpful. But I mean, I can't pretend that I've not gone through, like like I said, I went through a very, I went to a very, very mixed state school and then I went to a very unmixed university and it, it's, you know, it's, I, I've definitely, I've definitely learned. I think I've got older and I've learned and I've, I've made a big point of not judging anyone by who they are. You know, that's just, that sounds really sanctimonious, doesn't it? But it's just, just sort of how you hate to No, be. but it's, it's true, you know? And I do think that actually the fact that you went to a state school is probably why you're able to navigate this the way you have. Because I do think that you're very open and you're very like, I think you're very wise in how you actually even take in media, the fact that you know the stories, you're able to break it down. A lot of people just take media for what it is. You're very much as that you've read the reports or you've seen the report and you've been like, mm, actually, second guess a couple of things. Let me do my own research where a lot of people, the research side doesn't come from it. But I think that's because, not think, I guess, I think that a part of that is because of the upbringing as well, right? It's the fact that you went to school with a lot of different people where you weren't, it wasn't just you, you and you at every single level of your um, school. So I think when people feed you a false narrative, it's easier to debunk that and say, actually, no, that's not true. But it's also awareness of just, you know, I was, I was trying to be very careful in the questions I sent you because I'm very aware that it's exhausting. It's exhausting for that black people have been asked the same questions for years and years of going, where, where's the racism then? It's like, well, it's obviously that, just, you know, there's other questions that need to be asked. There's other things, there's other yeah. ways that you can explore things. So we're not just asking the same things again and again without ever learning from them. And, uh, you know, and I think that's the same with all, all these political issues. If you just do a bit of research and you just try and understand whether, where, what the person's, say, campaign is about or their expertise is about then you you can get better answers from them i think no you're right this has been uh, this has been really fun Thanks to Dee for having time to chat. Um, her podcast, The Curve, has been on a break since last year and is returning soon under a new name to be announced uh, in the coming days, I guess. Um, but till then, do go back and listen to old episodes, which you can find on all podcast servers and on Instagram at The Curve Podcast. Dee is amazingly and inspiringly absent from social media. I'm, to be honest, I'm very, very jealous. Um, but you can find her on Instagram at dee.e.s.aye. So, if all goes to plan, I'm hoping to speak to guests about Northern Ireland, Scotland, local elections and some of that political jazz over the next few weeks. But I'm as aware as ever that we're in a constant political shitstorm. So if there's anything you think I should be talking to people about, give us a shout. And you can do said shout via at Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast page on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could... Nah, what am I talking about? They've halted everything until Prince Philip is buried in case the very idea that anyone can be doing anything except mourning endlessly, like, say, sending a letter or wafting smoke signals, would be nothing but traitorous. So if you have any time left after wailing at your Philip shrine with your Philip pillow and eating your commemorative Philip moulded cheese string, then it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you for returning to this here show, despite the other option of just encasing your head in a cement mound, usually reserved for controlled explosions, and patiently sitting in a dark corner, hearing the endless sound of nothingness until all of this has passed, at which point a trusted friend, relative or Amazon delivery driver that you've got to know so well this past year will sledgehammer the casing off and tell you that there's finally something else on the television other than memorial programmes. But personally, I think you've made the right choice. Should you also feel the same and you haven't yet reached for your nearest concrete moulding toolkit, then please do recommend this shit to someone else whose existence you're at least vaguely aware of. Pop about it on social media or wherever you do your online shouting. Donate to the Kofi Patreon or Acast supporter site and maybe even give it a nice review on a podcast platform, train carriage interior or virtual meeting space. 
Warm thanks, but heated only by renewable energy to Acast, my brother, last skeptic, Cat Day, and Katie Coxall. And this will be back next week when political activity resumes and we suddenly all realise that actually we were much happier without it and campaign for the BBC to show wall to wall Prince Philip documentaries again. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Morning Prince Philip, obviously. How dare you even think about anything else? Stop it. Stop it right now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.